Good morning. What a, what a good thing that is for our souls to sing uh, songs like that, informed by the Word of God, full of the gospel, setting our hope on what cannot be destroyed, what will not be destroyed. How is your faith this morning? How, how is it with your soul this morning? For whatever reason, one, one reason or another, you're here gathered together in an assembly of people who profess to believe in Jesus. And you could be here for a number of reasons. Perhaps your parents dragged you here. Uh, could be out of habit, routine. This is what we do. You, you could be here with a conscious desire to worship Jesus, to hear and believe his word, whatever your reason is for being here, uh, you, you have some familiarity, some awareness of Jesus and his word, but I think it's also safe to speculate that within the last week, maybe a couple days, maybe even the last couple hours, you have experienced some kind of attitude of unbelief, some kind of discouragement and despair, perhaps guilt that weighs on your heart, maybe anxiety that sets in, clouds your thinking. Do you struggle ever with covetousness like we heard about last week or lust or pride or envy? These are routine things in the life of every believer. And Scripture speaks of the Christian life with all kinds of powerful metaphors the Christian is compared to a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit. The, the Christian life is like a journey. And according to our text this morning in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16, the Christian life is a fight. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It's an athletic contest. That's the language that Paul uses here. And it's a competition that God means for you to win. So I invite you to give your attention with me to God's Word, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. And if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. We do this out of reverence for God and His Word, which lays claims on us and enlightens our eyes and gives us life and light. But as for you, O man of God... Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, we give our amen to that. We agree. We affirm you and you alone deserve honor, esteem, worship, love from the hearts of all people on earth. You and you alone possess eternal dominion. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And we marvel at the privilege that it is to have your word and your spirit, to be your people, and to know that you are our God, that you have purchased us for yourself with the blood of your Son. And so we pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd strengthen our faith, and that you'd make yourself known to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it's my goal this morning to motivate you to fight the good fight of the faith. That's what I was talking about in this passage. That, that's the central command to Timothy there in verse 12. And I want to do that. I want to motivate you, encourage you in the fight of faith, specifically by showing you how to fight the fight of faith according to this passage. But, but first of all, I think it's necessary just to underscore this reality that you are in a fight. That's a reality that Scripture makes clear to us. We're supposed to know this and understand this and not be surprised by it. But too many Christians, I think, fall into despair and discouragement, thinking, woe is me. My faith wavers. I battle unbelieving thoughts. I'm sure nobody else does. My joy diminishes. I still sin. My affection's cool. I must be doing something wrong. And I'm sure nobody else deals with these kinds of struggles like I do. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised that you are in a fight. Don't, don't be shocked by the fact that faith is a fight. That's how Scripture speaks about this. Don't be discouraged. Don't wallow in any kind of misery and self-pity. Rather, recognize that God's Word calls this a fight and calls it a good fight, a noble fight. So, Fight against whom or against what? That matters a lot. Against whom are we fighting? Against what are we fighting? What does it mean to fight the fight of the faith? Paul uses that same phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 4, his next letter, his last letter to Timothy shortly before his death. 2 Timothy 4, 7, he describes himself. He uses this language talking about his own fight of faith. Here he is at the very end of his life, the end of his ministry, facing death, and he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So notice that fighting the good fight of the faith is parallel to finishing the race. It's parallel to keeping the faith. It has to do with persevering in faith, continuing to believe all that you have professed to believe, continuing to believe all the way to the end because saving faith is persevering faith. So Timothy's perseverance, his steadfastness, his endurance in faith is Paul's focus here. He writes in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God. And that marks this sharp change of direction from where he was in verses 3 through 10. 
He's setting Timothy apart from those he described in verse 10 as having wandered from the faith, piercing themselves with many pangs. So there are those who wander from the faith, but as for you, O man of God, so Timothy's perseverance in the faith is Paul's aim. And it's his aim for all the Christians in Ephesus in that church who would overhear this letter that was addressed to Timothy. And it's the aim of the Spirit of God that every Christian and every generation who reads these Spirit-inspired words would likewise persevere in the faith. Language here is the language of athletics, competition. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has a really similar phrase. He tells Timothy to wage the good warfare. He's using military battle language here. Here he uses athletic competition language. And I think the nuance is intentional. Timothy's engaged in an outward struggle against false teachers in Ephesus who had crept into the church, but he also has to be mindful of the state of his own soul that he himself personally continues to believe, continues to trust all that God promises to him. So there are evil demonic forces outside of us and around us, as Paul acknowledged in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. There are false teachers. There are people who oppose Jesus and his gospel. And likewise, within you, there is remaining or indwelling sin. And and that's where the fight of faith takes place. The good fight of the faith is the fight against sin and unbelief. The fight to keep believing. And it's fought at that heart level. The the verses we just came out of, 3 through 10, were full of this focus on the heart. Remember all those words? Cravings, unhealthy cravings, desires, the love of money. The, The fight of faith is waged within our hearts at that level of cravings and desires. What you love what you want, what you worship, what you trust, that's where the fight of faith is waged. And so the Christian life is a fight, and every Christian is called to compete in it. Picture a race. Think think about the sports that Paul would have had in mind, that Timothy would have been aware of. A race, a wrestling match, a boxing match, any athletic competition. The idea is the Christian life calls for the kind of diligent, discipline that athletes demonstrate. It requires some aggression, aggressive effort. It it requires a competitive drive, not competition against other Christians, not rivalry and envy and dissension. It's not competition against those around us. There is a competitive drive, though, in the Christian life, a drive to win, By God's grace, God calls you and he supplies you with all that you need to win. In Christ, you are meant to win, not to lose, not to give in, not to wallow in unbelief. And God calls you to have that kind of mindset. I don't just sit in my unbelief when it comes. I fight against it. In the words of Herm Edwards, the coach of the New York Jets, if you're a football fan, you probably is a famous press conference following a game when he said, "You play the game to win." Hello, you play the game to win. You don't just play it; you play to win. He, he gets it, and that's supposed to be the attitude in the Christian life as well. You, you're in it 
to win. There should be no moping, no pessimism, no woe is me. There's no place for despair, for acting defeated, for throwing in the towel. There's no quit. Fight the fight of faith. That's what Paul calls Timothy to do in this text, and he, God calls you to do. So how do you fight? I want to show you five ways from this text how you fight the fight of faith, and I trust that these will serve you in times to come. I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them. Flee, pursue, look forward, look back, look up. Flee, pursue, look forward, look back, look up. First of all, you fight the fight of faith by fleeing. Fleeing, paying attention to the warnings of Scripture. Paul says in verse 11, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. To flee is to seek safety and to do so in a hurry. There's some urgency about this. There is movement in a direction with speed and quickness. And these things are all the dangers that Paul just talked about. Unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction between people, the desire to be rich which leads to ruin and destruction, the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. Those are some of the things that Christians are called to flee. Fleeing is a a defensive strategy in the fight of faith. And it's important to know how to use it and to use it regularly. Paul elsewhere calls Christians to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, he calls Christians to flee idolatry. In 2 Timothy 2.22, he tells Timothy, flee youthful passions. This is a strategy for you to use. When you notice sinful desires, when you notice attitudes of unbelief settling in your own heart, when you notice temptations rising, flee, run, get away. So it's important to know how to flee and when to flee immediately. Don't compromise with sin. Don't make any provision for the flesh. Turn and run away by confessing to God. The instant you notice sinful inclinations in your heart, the way you flee is by turning to God in prayer and confessing that. And then enjoying the promise of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we confess. That's how we flee. We cry out to God for help in that moment when we notice our weakness. I think it's important to comment here the nature of warning. Scripture is full of warnings that are meant to help you know what to flee and when to flee. But because of the severity of the warnings that you read in Scripture, I think it's possible to read them and feel some kind of fearful alarm that can quickly turn into a lack of assurance. You, you read the warnings and you start, it, you know, the progression goes something like, oh my gosh, I don't want to fall away. What if I fall away? I might fall away. And then before you know it, you're convinced, I'm going to fall away. And that, if you don't have that experience, just thank God. But I know that many because of the sensitivity of your soul, because of your desire to be faithful to Christ, that thought comes with some regularity to your mind. So how should you read these warnings? Is it this expectation of doom, this fearful 
anticipation, oh no, this is going to happen to me. Now, the way to read and receive warnings in scriptures, to hear them as the loving concern, the loving pleading of a wise and gracious father who wants the absolute best for his sons and daughters. And if you're a parent, you get this. You think about your kids and you just you want them to watch out for danger. Listen to the pleading of a father in Proverbs 4, 10 through 15. Hear, my son. Listen to this voice. Hear, my son, accept my words that the years of your life may be many. That's the desire, that the years of your life may be many. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. That's a dad speaking to his son trying to muster up all of the seriousness and urgency that he can to get his son's attention because his son may not perceive the danger that the older, wiser father perceives. And in his love for you, his son, his daughter, God, your father, has filled his words, his word, scripture, with these warnings so that you might avoid these dangers that would destroy your soul. Not because you have to be afraid of that, but so that you might avoid them. So it's good for your soul. It's good for us to contemplate those dangers, the ruin and destruction, the many piercing pangs of sin, to contemplate them and to resolve in our hearts by God's grace to flee. So when you find yourself engaged in that fight of faith, some attitude of unbelief settles in. If you notice your spiritually dry or stagnant, if you feel like your sanctification has plateaued, good place to start is to ask, am, am I compromising anywhere? Is there any sin that I'm tolerating in my life? Is there any sin that I'm not turning away from? What am I watching? What am I listening to? What am I taking in? Am I fleeing everything that I ought to flee? Flee. And the other side of that coin is pursue. Flee and pursue. Those two things go together. It's actually just one thing because the one action of running away from danger, you have to be running somewhere. You're not just running away from danger, you're running towards something. So Paul says to Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fleeing and pursuing go together. This is always the way that God, by his grace, changes you always involves these two things. That's why in our discipleship huddles, we emphasize that habit, that rhythm of repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. We do that over and over and over because that's how God changes us. We repent, we flee, we put off sin, and we believe, we trust, we run to the truth, we pursue, move in that direction. Paul talks this way in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. There he uses the language of putting off and putting on. Put off your old self. Put on the new self. Put away falsehood, but you don't just put off falsehood if you're in the habit of lying. You also put on truth-telling. You start to speak the truth to one another. Paul calls those who are stealing to put off stealing and to put on hard work and generosity. You don't just put off the old thing. You put on something new. James Adam, J. Adams puts it like this. He, he asks, when is a thief no longer a thief? It can't just be any time he's not stealing because even thieves have to stop to sleep and eat. And in those moments, they're not stealing anything. But that doesn't mean they're not thieves if they have this habit of stealing. 
So when is a thief no longer a thief? When he repents and puts off his stealing ways, puts away that habit, and puts on a new habit. Hard work and generosity, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. So when are you no longer a porn addict? When you take that habit, put it to death by God's grace, and replace it, instead of lust, you put on self-control and contentment and gratitude. Instead of secrecy and isolation, you put on community and accountability. Put off, put on. You flee and you pursue. So Paul calls Christians here to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is just one of many virtue lists in the New Testament. There are many of them. They overlap. They differ. None of them is exhaustive. They're just meant to be examples. These are the observable qualities that God produces in his people over time. And God means for you to make progress in these things, that with time, as you trust in Jesus and fight the fight of faith and put these things on, just like in sports, with practice, you notice progress. Progress in everyday righteousness. Progress in Holiness, progress in patience, progress in your steadfastness. You grow in these things by God's grace. Because the Christian faith, the life of faith, the fight of faith is progressive victory. God's working out in our actual lives in time. And it's a joyful thing to experience that together with other believers. Third thing, look forward. Fight the fight of faith by clinging in hope to future promises. Verse 12, Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. To take hold is to, to cling to, to grasp something. And the form of the verb here that we don't really have in English, uh, in the Greek, the emphasis is on a completed action. It's a command to complete something. Take hold to the end, not just hold on to it for a little while, hold on to, to it until you get tired. Take hold of it. You were called to it, hold on to it all the way to the end. How do you hold on to eternal life? I mean, it's, it's not in a box, you can't hold it in your hand. Look ahead at verse 19. Just a few verses later, Paul says something similar to those who are wealthy. He says that those who are rich in this present age are to be rich in good works. Listen storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's a future-oriented aspect to this taking hold, and yet it's something that's happening now. So in the moment, you're taking hold of something for the future. How, how does that work? I, I find a lot of clarity in Paul's words in Romans 8, 24, and 25. For in this hope we are saved... Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? If, if you already have it, it's not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the nature of hope, the nature of future-oriented faith is looking ahead in anticipation that God really is going to do, He really is going to be, He is really going to fulfill all He has promised to be and do for us. We don't yet see it. If we saw it, we wouldn't call it hope. But we trust Him. 
So the fight of faith is eschatological. It's future-oriented. It's directed toward the final things, the last things, this eternal life to which you were called. And so by faith, right now, today, we take hold of that by trusting God's promises, which means you have to know what God promises. You have to know what he says to you. Who is he? What does he say that he'll do? Hold those promises consciously in your mind. Look at verses 14 and 15. Where Paul reminds Timothy, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So everything else Timothy is called to do in the present is to be done with this hope in mind. The appearing. He promised he's coming back. He's going to keep his word. Trust that. Be faithful now, trusting that future promise. He will display it at the proper time. So that's how you fight the fight of faith. You look forward in faith to all that God promises. And fourth, look back. While Paul calls Timothy to take hold of this eternal life, which is coming in the future, and he's supposed to hold on to it in the present, Paul is also reminding Timothy In the past, you were called to this, and you made the good confession about this in the presence of many witnesses, verse 12. So two past things Paul reminds Timothy about. First, God's initiative toward him. This is how you fight the fight of faith. You remember God's initiative toward you. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. By who? by God himself. If you're a Christian, it's because of God's initiative toward you, God's work in you. God is the one who called you. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He called you into this. Remember that. Remember that this didn't start with you anytime that you're discouraged, anytime you're looking at the weakness of your own faith your own sinfulness, your own lack of progress. Remember that God is the one who called you. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's not about you. It doesn't depend on you. He called you. And what comfort we find in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God called you. Remember that. You have to remember that to continue fighting the fight of faith. And remember your own profession of faith. Paul says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life about which you made the good confession. What's he talking about? I think Romans 10 is probably a a clue if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the truth that no one ever outgrows. You never move beyond that. Paul is reminding Timothy, you professed this and you did so in public, in the presence of many witnesses. Why does he remind Timothy of that? I think it's because the Christian life, this fight of faith, is not a private fight. It's personal. That that is, you personally, you individually must believe, but it's not private. Think of a marriage. 
why do we have marriages in public with witnesses? Why do a man and a woman stand in front of witnesses and make their vows? As a minister, we say things like, in the presence of God and these witnesses. Even though it's a personal, private relationship, it's just between those two people, it's not between them and anybody else, and yet others are involved in witnessing those vows. It's a serious thing. So that down the road, if either one is unfaithful, there are people in their lives who are committed to saying to them, I was there, I heard what you said, I heard when you said for better or for worse. And I get that this is worse, but I was there when you promised it and you didn't think the worst was ever going to come. I heard that. It's a private relationship and it's public. And likewise, our profession of faith, it's, it's your faith in, in Jesus and yet you profess that publicly. And then there are other believers walking with you in gospel community to strengthen you and encourage you. So remember your profession of faith. The way that Christians publicly profess faith is through baptism. And so, if you believe in Jesus and you have not been baptized, let me encourage you, be baptized. Make that public profession. If you are not committed to a local church, commit yourself to a local church. It doesn't have to be this one. I'm not saying that to promote Emmaus Road Church. For the sake of your soul, commit yourself to a community of believers. Paul appeals to Timothy, remember your public profession of faith. Remember that. So that when faith grows weak, you will not grow weary or throw in the towel or quit, but you keep fighting the fight of faith. Remember that. And finally, look up. Look up in worship. Fight the fight of faith by worshiping God at all times, no matter how you feel. We have um, too many of the wrong kind of feelings in modern worship. We talk about affections at Emmaus Road Church. We talk about informed affections. I like the word affections because it reminds me I am to be affected by something. I'm not feelings. I want affections. I want to be affected by the truth of all that God is. Impassioned orthodoxy. Truth that causes our hearts to burn. But the kind of worship that's just sentimental fluff will not help you through the fight of faith. Those feelings wear off, and when you say, well, I, I don't feel like worshiping God right now, repent of that. <laughs> Nobody asked you whether you feel like worshiping Him. The truth is, He is worthy of your worship, so worship Him. Bend your knee to Him. Lift your voice to Him. He is God. It's not about how you feel. It's about who He is. So worship Him no matter how you feel, and you will make progress in the fight of faith. This is the climax of Paul's letter to Timothy. He opened with a charge to Timothy to confront false teachers in Ephesus, and now he closes with a restatement of that charge in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. But it is impossible to imagine a more solemn charge than that. How could you possibly charge somebody with anything more serious than to say God himself is a witness of this obligation. Problem is, so many of us, even though we profess faith at times, function like atheists at other times. We live like God's not watching, like our lives aren't playing out in the presence of God. Psalm 10, 
verses 4 and 11. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. When you start to live like that, God doesn't see, God doesn't know. That leads to all kinds of manifestation of sin. The remedy is always worship. This is the ultimate way to fight the fight of faith because faith is about trusting all that God is. So how do you keep doing that? You keep worshiping. You keep turning to who he is. Paul calls for this in this incredible, glorious doxology at the end, verses 15 and 16, the conclusion. He ends with this line, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. And amen calls for a response that those who hear it say, amen. Yes, I agree. Paul's not just having private time of worship. He's saying to Timothy, agree with this. And to everybody in Ephesus overhearing the letter, agree with this. And to you today, agree with this. Worship. Join in blessing God. He is the only sovereign and blessed King of kings and Lord of lords. And so you fight the fight of faith by worshiping. Worship Jesus who took on flesh for you. Of all the things Paul could have said about Jesus, he mentions Jesus' testimony before Pontius Pilate, which seems interesting to me. He could have talked about the cross. He could have talked about his resurrection from the dead. He talks about Jesus making a profession, giving a testimony before Pontius Pilate. It's consistent with how Paul has talked about Jesus throughout this entire letter. He's always emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the man, Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and man. He was manifested in the flesh. And so here he's talking about Timothy's profession of faith and he points him to Jesus' testimony when he was on trial before Pilate in a moment of weakness and humility and ultimate threat on his way to the cross. According to Luke 23, 3, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? What was the testimony Jesus made? You have said so. In the face of death, with his life on the line, Jesus testified, I am the Christ. And Paul says, you want to fight the fight of faith? Look at that. Look at Jesus. So the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, this is how you endure. You look to Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You look at him. And not only does Jesus provide for us an example, he assures us that the one in whom we trust, the one whom we worship, the one to whom we swear allegiance unto death, he himself was willing to endure death to redeem us from sin and to reconcile us to himself. So that's how you maintain allegiance to him. You look to him. And not only do you look to him, when, when you look to him, you not only see him in his humanity and his weakness and his suffering and his death, but you see that he is the image of this invisible God that Paul describes here, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That is, God himself has all power, all authority. That means there's no one else to fear. He alone has immortality. He gives life to all things. So 
Out of the infinite life he possesses, he gives you life. That means when your faith is weak, when your energy is exhausted, he is the source of all that you need. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him. No one can see him. That just speaks of his exalted glory. He wraps himself with light as with a garment. That's what your heart most needs. I know in the, in the midst of the fight of faith, think, why, why do I need to know things like he dwells in unapproachable light? Because when you're giving in to unbelief, all you can think about is yourself and your circumstances. And you need to know that there is a God who is much bigger, much stronger, much more glorious than anything that you could ever secure for yourself in this world that he made and sustains by his word. That's what we need to fight the fight of faith. We need to worship this God. Faith is looking to Jesus. It's relying on Jesus. It's hoping in Jesus. It's delighting in Jesus. And so that's how you fight the fight of faith. Keep on worshiping him in community with others, remembering his faithfulness to you in the past, his calling of you in the past, and looking forward to all that he promises to be and do for you. Let's pray. Father, if you dwell in unapproachable light, then it is with reverence and awe, with wonder and amazement, with humility that we come before you. We, we don't take this lightly to have the privilege to call on you, to have access to you through Jesus. What a gift. What a gracious God you are that you would reconcile this world to yourself. That you would purchase this world with immortal blood. that you would redeem and save this fallen world. God, give us endurance. Give us steadfastness. Give us hope. Strengthen us when we're weak. Encourage us when we're discouraged. Lift our eyes when we are focused on ourselves in self-pity and misery. Let us look to you, exalted in glory, you are the one we seek. You are all we need. We trust in you. We trust in you. Let, let our faith be renewed that as we go from this place, faith in Jesus would be refreshed and restored in us, that we would be messengers of this gospel of reconciliation for the sake of this world you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.